Now we're in the 10th chapter of the book of Hebrews, and I want you to find the place at verse 26 of Hebrews chapter 10. True prophets of God in the Old Testament had two things in common. They comforted the afflicted, and they afflicted the comforted. They were able to do both of those, but they did the latter a little better than the farmer. I mean, they were able to afflict the comforted. And these prophets of God delivered and preached and taught the original and authentic message of God without error. Now, you probably would not agree with everything they said if you were listening to a prophet from the Old Testament. And you probably, no, no question about it, you would be offended by their message. But one thing for certain, you'd never go to sleep while they preached. They stirred up Israel. Now, the author of the book of Hebrews is a New Testament prophet. What we have in this material that we've been wading through is, prophetic, uh, is a prophetic message. He does both. He comforts the afflicted, and the afflicted are the people. Uh, this is the nature of the people to whom this is addressed. They are in trouble, and many of them have suffered so much, they're ready to go back to Judaism, and that's what this is all about. And he's comforting them. But he also, from time to time, afflicts the comforted. And just like a long, bony index finger that comes up out of the pages, we can just feel that finger jab us right in the breastbone. And what he says in these dire warnings is something like this. This is the way it is, and you better listen up. And that's what we've come to tonight in this study. You, you, you remember from last week that, that as we... Uh, kind of outlined the structure of the passage, we said that there were two facts that are found. One is found in verse 19 and the other is found in 21. The first fact is that we have confidence to enter into the holiest place on earth because of the blood of Jesus. And secondly, we, we, this fact, we know that since He, His presence, fills the house of God, whose house we are, so that He indwells us this great high priest of God. And because of that, we have three commands. The first command is that we're to draw near in faith to Him who indwells us. There is a place of quiet rest near to the heart of God, and that holiest place in the world is in you inside where Christ dwells in your spirit. We're to draw near in faith that God is going to be everything we need. And we're to secondly hold fast the confession of our hope, that is, we're to proclaim this hope we have, which everybody needs in the world, and we're to stir one another up in love. And there the great, there's the great trilogy. We're to draw near in faith, hold fast the hope, and, and stir one another up in love. And, and, and then he says, in essence, if I let it go at that, without a warning, these people are going to drift. And so he gives them this dire warning. And verses 26 through 31 is the warning. And verses 32 through 39 is the appeal. And when you come to the warning and to the appeal, you see two Christian groups in contrast. Now follow with me in reading verse 26. For if we go on sinning willfully, 
after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will, be, which will consume the adversaries. Now who is the we of verse 26? If we go on willfully sinning, it's amazing when you look at the commentaries that the, that the verses of Scripture that you don't understand are usually the ones that have the least amount to say about. I mean, you can find just all kinds of material on verses of Scripture you understand, but those difficult and complex, complex Scriptures, there's little. In fact, some commentaries say, well, it doesn't matter who the we are. Well, if verse 26 is talking about me, it makes a big difference to me. Who is this we, if we willfully go on sinning? There is no sacrifice, but a fearful expectation of judgment. Well, some say that this is the we that he refers to are unbelievers. And I don't know how many sermons I've heard as a, heard as a child from this text preached to sinners, to lost people, and it's in the context of the unpardonable sin that you cannot be saved if you step across the line of grace. You remember those great old sermons you used to hear out under, you know, in, the, in revival times. But is he referring to unbelievers? Who wrote this epistle? Would you consider that the author of this epistle was an unbeliever or a believer? Well, he was a believer. And he, and he identifies himself with this group. He said, even if I do this, then I have no, um, uh, there's no recourse for me except a fearful judgment. And then he adds this, if we go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth. Now what does that sound like to you? It sounds like a person who has recognized and received the message of eternal life, the message of salvation, that indeed he's talking about believers. With your finger placed right there, I want you to turn back to the little letter of 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. And there is a place where this phrase is used exactly like that, translated exactly like that. And it's verse 4 of chapter 2, it says... He says, verse 3, this is, a good and acceptable, uh, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved. And this is how he describes their salvation. And come to the knowledge of the truth. So that coming to the knowledge of the truth and being saved, as we use that term, our, our salvation, are one and the same. He's talking to people who have been saved, who are Christians. Now some say, well, he's referring then to believers who have believed but have lost their salvation. They have once believed, but they no longer believed. They were once saved, but they, were no, they are no longer saved. If that's true, then that means that if you can lose your salvation, you cannot be saved again. Well, he said... If you use that in, that in that way, that there is no more sacrifice or there is no, uh, nothing to look forward to but a fearful judgment. So if he's referring to people who have lost their salvation, then these people cannot be saved after they've once lost their salvation. I see this, however, as a believer 
who willfully sins after having been saved. And the word go on sinning is the present tense, linear action, and it suggests a continual lifestyle of sinning willfully, and it marks a long attitude of persistent sin, of knowing the principle of denying self and following Jesus and refusing to do so, and of continually, willfully rejecting the will of God. Now, I want you to be sure and understand what, I'm, what I feel is being said. He is talking to, this is serious business, he's saying, the believer who understands the principle of denying self and following Christ and doesn't do it, and who understands the will of God for his life and refuses to follow the will of God for his life, but willfully goes on sinning. Now, what are the characteristics of such a person as that? Well, in verse 29, he said, such a, such a person tramples underfoot the Son of God. Now, what does that mean? It means to disregard the lordship of Jesus Christ and the authority of Christ in your life. I wonder how many people tonight who make up the church, that is, the broad, in the broad sense of the church, understands the lordship of Jesus Christ and has submitted his life to the authority of Jesus Christ and understands and, 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 and believes and follows and submits to the lordship of Christ and his authority over their life. How many of us practice that? Now, if we're going to, decide, if we're going to describe tonight in contrast, which does your life fit most um, accurately under? A willful following the authority and the lordship of Christ for you in every situation or a willful rejection of his lordship and authority for you? Which most describes you? The second characteristic, he said, of these people is this. They make unclean the blood of the covenant. That is, they profane the new agreement. And in the, in the uh, symbolism of the book of Hebrews, he helps us to see that when a person becomes a Christian, in the Jewish uh, vernacular, in the Jewish economy, they were sprinkled by the blood. And that sprinkling of the blood was symbolical of their cleansing. And so when you become a Christian, the same, in the same spiritual analogy, you're sprinkled by the blood. So he's saying, you profane that blood. That is, you love what he hates, and you resist what he demands, and he has saved you by his death, and you treat that as though it did not matter. Third characteristic, he says, is that these people insult the Spirit of grace. Now, the Spirit of grace is the Holy Spirit. And he said, you treat with contempt the prompting of the Holy Spirit. You treat with contempt the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Now, let me, let me do something with you that I need to do for myself. I'll just do it for myself and let you listen in. Are there times when 
the Holy Spirit comes, just comes again and again to your life regarding some issue or matter that you are doing or not doing. And this Holy Spirit just speaking to your heart prompts you and prompts you and prompts you. And you treat with contempt His prompting. Now there's some consequences of that. There are really two consequences or options that God has, I, I think, when this is true of a believer. The first option is that God may take that person out of the earth as a discipline that is called the sin unto death. The sin unto death in 1 John 5. That God just finally says to this unbeliever, if you're going to go on trampling underfoot uh, the lordship of Christ and treating with contempt His blood and resisting the prompting of the Holy Spirit, I'm just going to remove you from the earth. Or the second option is that he can let the believer live the rest of his life in the awareness that he's going to encounter God in a terrible judgment. Now when he says that there remaineth no more sacrifice for sin, it seems to imply that a person will go on in that condition and there is no turning around. That God allows that believer to go on in that condition and there is no turning around. And so what he has to look forward to is to, is to meet God in judgment and the fire of that judgment. Now it's not the fire of hell. It's the fire of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11 through 15 when it says that everything in this life, wood, hay, and stubble will be consumed in this, in this straw life by the fiery judgment of God, so that a man stands before God and loses everything except his soul. That's a terrifying thing. That a man will live, a believer will live his life in this, in, you know, live on the earth this life to, to such a degree and under such a condition that when he comes before God, he has no reward. He loses everything. Now he turns to make an appeal. And the appeal is found in verses 32 through 39. Let me just read a verse or two. But remember the former days, when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of suffering. Now who are these people he's talking to here? They're believers who are still standing firm. They're still standing firm. They're hurting, but they're still standing. They are suffering, but they're still standing for Christ. Now here's the contrast, the marvelous contrast that makes up the family of God. You have some who, have, who are literally uh, indistinguishable from the unbeliever, and you have those who are standing firm for God, regardless of the cost. Now there are three or four characteristics of these. One is that they are familiar with hardship. It's never going to be easy. Verse, 40, verse 33 said, or verse, the last part of 32 and the first part of 33, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations. 
They are acquainted with suffering. It's not going to be easy. You know, I have noticed, I have observed that what distinguishes the child of God is not what one endures and the other other doesn't. It's not a matter of does one have suffering and the other not. It's how that person responds to suffering. For suffering is going to be a part of every life. And the great dividing line oftentimes occurs at the point of suffering, how we respond to it. And he said, I see that you have, I know that you've endured hardship. They've made a public spectacle of you. The word in the Greek is, is the word where we get the word theater. You've been on display. You've, you've experienced suffering, and it's not silent suffering. You're on the front page of the Daily Gazette. Sound familiar? You've endured public suffering. Secondly, there is concern on the part of these for those in need. He says in verse 34, last part of 33 and 34, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. You've you've identified with those in suffering to the point it is as though it happened to you, for you showed sympathy to the prisoners. There are people who have, who have concern for those in need. Third characteristic is that they're free from materialism. I want you to hang on to verse 34. It says, 34b, it says, And accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. In other words, he's saying you're the kind of people who understand that The greatest things in life cannot be bought with money. There's no materialism there. You accepted joyfully the seizure of property because you understand that you have something far better than that. And then he said, the fourth characteristic is that they have confidence in the Lord. He said, verse 35, Do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Now the characteristics of these Christians who uh, are standing firm. They're people who endure suffering, public suffering. And they have concern for those in need. And they're free from materialism. The things of this life don't really make that much difference to them. And they have confidence in God. They've placed their faith in Him. I read somewhere that you can take a bar of steel it's worth, worth $5. You can make that bar of steel into horseshoes, it's worth $10. You can make that bar of steel into needles, it's worth $500. You can make that bar of steel into small uh, springs to go in a watch, it's worth $250,000. But to get those small springs to go in a watch that's worth $250,000, that bar must be cut down to size put in a blast furnace, beaten and polished. And somebody said when God wants to do an impossible task, He takes an impossible man and He crushes him. And so here were these saints of God who had been polished and crushed and broken under the suffering of their time, but they remained firm and they rejoiced in all of it because they knew they had something better than things. Now, what do they need? What do we need? 
Well, he tells us in verse 36, the thunder. You get the picture of a donkey, a burro, a little spindly leg, and they start putting on the burden, and just keep putting on the burden. He just keeps on remaining under. We need to... We need hupomene, endurance, to abide under. And Charlie Jones came home one night to see his um, house burning down. And down in his basement, he had some precious possessions that he cherished, some trophies he had won, some scrapbooks. And that was the first thing to, to go. And he said, as I stood there lamenting over the loss of my trophies, God said, don't worry about those, Charlie. I was planning to burn those up anyway. I wonder tonight if you have something in your... Do you have a life that's based upon those things that will not perish? Now, there are three applications that relate to three questions I raised. The first question is this. Where are you going in your spiritual life? Where are you going in your spiritual life? Where is it heading? What direction has your spiritual life taken? Second question. What if you don't alter your course? What if you don't alter your course? If your spiritual life continues as it is now, and it just keeps on going the direction that it's going, and you don't alter the, its core, the course, where is it ultimately going to take you? Third question. When is a better time to alter a spiritual direction that God does not approve than now. When is a better time to make the changes in your life that will change the course and the direction of your spiritual life? When are you going to do that? When is a better time than now? Because this passage suggests that if that spiritual that course of your spiritual life continues as it is and it is not what it ought to be, there comes a point when there is no turning back. And all the prospect that we enjoy or have is a fearful encounter with the living God in a judgment of fire. And that, my friend, is directed to you and to me who are believers. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you'll open our eyes, that we may see glimpses of truth thou hast for me, and that you'll help us, Lord, in the investigation and the search of our own heart to encounter the truth. Understand that it is a serious matter to claim Jesus Christ as Savior and to walk with Him, and that to hear the prompting of the Holy Spirit who lives within us day after day, and resist that prompting is a dangerous and serious thing. And I pray that if there are those of us tonight who have 
trampled his will underfoot. But you'll turn us now while there's time to turn, because I pray in Jesus' name for his sake. There are three invitations tonight. The first invitation is an invitation to receive There comes a time when that prompting to be saved is not as clear and as strong and as forceful that we can build a crust around ourselves of resistance and rejection. The second invitation is for you to, to, to consider the direction of your life and the changes that need to be made, the will of God for you and the prompting of the Holy Spirit who comes again and again. Maybe that would involve a church membership change or whatever. Whatever God would have you do, we'd ask you to do it while we stand and we sing together.